podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hi everyone, I'm Mo Chatra and welcome to another episode of Money Talks right here on Anfield Index. And uh, there's been a while since I last produced one of these Money Talks, um, but I'm joined by a great guest to talk about all manner of uh, financial, commercial and other money-related matters when it comes to Liverpool Football Club. I'm joined by Mo Schumann. How are you doing, Mo? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Glad to be back uh, a second time now. Yeah, no, glad to have you on as well. And uh, yeah, as I say, um, plenty of uh, meaty subjects to uh, get stuck into. Um, yeah, it's been a while since we last talked about um, the football club's finances. Um, I think it was shortly after the... Uh, accounts have been published and um since then obviously the season has concluded um not the uh, greatest of seasons where the football club's recent history is concerned uh, managed to uh evade the top four in the end um, finishing fifth and uh for the first time in a number of seasons has missed out on the champions league um for the following season so um we'll only make it into the europa league and um, we'll talk about the consequences of that later on. Um, but in terms of the season that has just finished, um, Liverpool Football Club should still nonetheless have generated uh, revenues of around £580 million. So for the season prior to that, um, for 21-22, the club's revenue um, was reported as five hundred. And ninety-four million pounds, um, and obviously that was a season in which Liverpool Football Club managed to get to the final of the Champions League, came within a whisker of winning the Premier League, and uh, went the whole way in securing both of the um, domestic cup competitions. So successful in terms of the number of games, and uh, obviously not so successful in terms of grabbing those major honours, um, but nonetheless uh, record-breaking levels of turnover for that season. But despite only managing to make it to the last 16 of the Champions League and finishing outside of the top four, from a revenue perspective, still a very, very successful season in terms of the estimates. Bear in mind, we won't know officially exactly where the club has ended up until probably the earliest indication will be the publication of the Deloitte Football Money League which we'll have to wait all the way until January for. Um, but based on pretty reasonable estimates that we can make around the primary sources of revenue relating to match day, um, broadcast and commercial, £580 million 
is a pretty reasonable estimate. So what, what would you make of that overall then, uh, Mo, in terms of um, despite the lack of on-field success to still achieve that level of turnover uh, for the season just finished? Um, I, I think it demonstrates the sort of fundamentals that FSG have, have built up. Um, as, as long as you're in the Champions League, um, as long as you've got your your name up there in lights, um, in big sort of games that the TV companies want to buy, you're always gonna you're always gonna be up there uh, in in a good position to make money. I, th- I think I think your estimate is reasonable. It's uh, about twenty million pounds below last season. That's expected because last season, of course, we went to the final of the Champions League. This season. Um, not 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 so far, not as far. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's a very reasonable estimate, and um, I expect our commercial revenues to be um, relatively similar, maybe only a little bit lower, just because the commercial revenue is partly tied to Champions League performance as well, in terms of the, the rewards that your sponsors give you. But I would, at the same time, think that the um, commercial revenue would be boosted by uh, merchandise related. Uh, revenue as well, so yeah, I think I think of, uh, that you're materially right with that estimate. Right, and yeah, so I mean, in terms of the model that is in place, um, it's a testament to to that, and uh, you know that in turn um, should help to um, help help to certainly facilitate some of the much needed now uh, business that needs to be undertaken during this. Um, close season and obviously into the early parts of the new season through till the end of the transfer window, uh, which would fall towards the end of August, early September. Um, but yeah, that, that, that certainly is a very solid base um, to get that business done from, especially in light of um, the financial model that FSG um, have in place and stick very, very rigidly to. And in terms of the extent to which they choose to stick to that model, it is another thing that does create a lot of debate, and and we will certainly touch on that later on. But um, in terms of the season just finished, um, the wage bill that is an interesting subject because we do know that um, towards the uh, uh, close season period, um, Mo Salah did obviously extend his contract um, and that was something that was creating a lot of debates even a bit of angst amongst certain sections of the fan base about will he extend or might the club be almost forced to move him on because um, he refuses to uh, you know extend his deal with Liverpool Football Club Um, extend the deal he did um, for a very handsome uplift in terms of his base um, wage uh, reported as an uh, increase to 350,000 a week. Obviously, that will be topped up by significant um, uh, bonuses as well. Um, so, Mo certainly is now one of the preeminent earners in the Premier League. But nonetheless, the wage bill still would have taken um, somewhat of a hit. So, for context, for 21 22, the wage bill was £366 million. So that was officially the second highest wage bill in the Premier League for that season behind only Manchester United. 
And obviously, most of you will probably say, well, what about Manchester City? Um, officially, their wage bill was smaller than that of Liverpool Football Club. Uh, and that obviously will uh, raise many eyebrows about it, how on earth that is possible, uh, given um, some of the wages reported uh, for that club. Uh, and that perhaps is an entirely separate pod in its own right. But let's focus in on Liverpool then, Mo. I, I again estimate that there would have been a reduction in that wage bill. Uh, uh, we, we all know that Liverpool's um, wage structure is more heavily incentivised than other clubs. So what that means is that um, though the basic wages are perhaps lower than some rival clubs, um, the bonus structure is more uh, generous um, than other clubs. And so therefore... Um, it is then more inextricably linked to success. So the more matches we win, the more goals we score, uh, the more success we ultimately have, um, the more that players are paid. And the fact that we finished outside of the top four, we didn't secure, never mind any major honours, but any honours whatsoever, unless you count the community shield, which most people wouldn't. Um, clearly, the, the, the success um, on pitch was... Uh, below that of 21-22. So despite the Mo deal and despite one or two other deals uh, taking effect, um, the wage bill ultimately should still have been smaller. So though there was obviously a reduction in revenue, um, there should have been at least a corresponding reduction in the wage bill um, and possibly an even greater reduction in the wage bill than the reduction in in, in turnover. Um, so, So what are your thoughts around that? Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design T-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise, and a license with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to anfieldindex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. I, I agree with Mo on uh, the um, salaries declining next uh, this season. Um, I think a, a combination of uh, not qualifying for the Champions League and therefore not accruing those big Champions League bonuses um, will help. I think Salah's new contract, Nunes coming in, that will increase costs slightly. But at the same time, we sold Mane and we sold Minamino, we sold Origi. So those those kind of things will, um, I think, balance off those salary increases. Um, also, I also think that because of the contract extensions of Van Dyke, um, Trent, Robbo and Allison last season, um, would have seen one-off signing on bonuses inflating last season's um, costs as well, which we shouldn't see this season. So I think, yeah, the the revenue decline will definitely be reflected in salaries also declining. So that should help the club out in, in cash flow terms. Yeah, I mean, I'm really intrigued to see what the wage bill ends up being. Again, we're going to have to wait quite a considerable amount of time um, until the accounts are published for 22-23. And those will only come out 
um, early part of March next year. So we've got close to nine months to wait. Um, but that will perhaps be the most interesting element of the accounts uh, when they are published in terms of the effect on the wage bill, um, primarily due to uh, missing out on Champions League. So um, perhaps one of the best comparators to make is that with Manchester United. So their wage bill um, going back to 1819 was 332 million. And then the following season in 1920, um, a season in which uh, they didn't participate in the Champions League, they saw their wage bill reduced by 48 million to 284. Now, obviously, part of that was due to um, the season not having been con- concluded in that financial year. Obviously, it was a COVID-affected, uh, it was a COVID-affected season. So um, the season finished in 20, 2021. Um, so some of that wage bill would have been reflected in that following year's accounts. Um, but nonetheless, um, a large chunk of that reduction um, would have owed to the fact that that club missed out on Champions League football. Um, so that isn't necessary to say that Liverpool's wage bill um, should have reduced should reduce by a similar amount next season. I, I don't think that that necessarily will be the case. Um but uh, yeah, certainly in terms of uh, bonuses paid out in year um, for qualifying, um, yeah, I'd imagine, as you say, that that should take a bit of a hit. And so overall, um, I, I'd be surprised if the wage bill is up on 332 million from uh, last, sorry, 366 million, I should say, from last season, 21 Um but I wouldn't um, anticipate it being uh, an increase, but if anything, a slight reduction, despite, say, some of the uh, new deals that came into effect. So moving on then, and um, talking about a subject that keeps uh, all of Liverpool Football Club Twitter and other forms of social media alive with chit-chat, um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and that is the transfer window, everyone's favourite subject. So we um, obviously have gone into the window, clearly needing to do more business than we have done for quite some time. And, you know, um, there are, um, you know, various sections of the fan base who in previous summers um, went into um, very uh, heated discussions flame wars even um, over the extent to which the club was doing business. So if you even go back a year ago um, to last summer, um, many, many fans were um, calling for the club to sign at least one, if not two midfielders. The club didn't permanently sign a single midfielder. Instead, um, signed um, Artemelo on pretty much deadline day. And um, he contributed diddly squat to uh, the campaign pretty much. And, uh, you know, that that was no real surprise. Um, A complete dud failure of a loan signing. And, um, you know, many fans have argued that, you know, the club's failure to sign even a decent midfielder, never mind a stronger, you know, a good or a great one, um, was perhaps the difference between um, finishing in fifth place 
and finishing higher than that and making top four and uh, achieving Champions League football once more. Um, but here we are. So we do know that um, on the evidence of last season, um, the midfield needs major surgery and the club has already brought in an incoming striking a very good deal for Alexis McAllister at um, a reported £35 million. Um, and then there are obviously reports now growing in the last day or two that um, the club may or may not be close to securing another midfielder. Um, so Kefram Turam of Nice, um, you know, there are reports circulating that um, we might be close to deal there. Uh, and that deal might be in the region of £40 million, maybe slightly more, slightly less. Uh, but obviously there are the reports saying that, that that's still a deal that's a way off. So um, who, who really knows um, until um, an official announcement comes out or we see that um, infamous th- uh, tweet from Paul Joyce um, to pretty much announce that the deal is very close. But um, one of the discussions that has been raging is to what extent Liverpool have um, funds available to spend on those incomings. Um, so I, I've been talking more about the likelihood that, yes, the club does need to spend significant amounts. I, I feel that um, some of the reports that have circulated in certain cores that the club may have about £200 million to spend, including sales, um, is um, a pretty reasonable one. I, I do think that if you look at... Um, some of the spend on uh, deals that obviously would have been paid over several instalments over the last couple of years, um, going from the deals to most recently Cody Gakpo and then Nunez uh, last summer through to the previous summer of um, Kanate coming in. And even from two summers ago in 2021, um, when, when, when um, that deal uh, was put together, um, you know, we, we should have seen um, a, f- a fair amount of um, commitments around uh, money's owed to clubs that sold players to us having been spent. So therefore, um, we, we should have a reasonable amount of money just from club-generated revenue to spend on transfers. And clearly, we didn't go big on transfers um, post-2018. Um, you know, 2018, we uh, spent significant sums on Virgil van Dijk on um, Naby Keita, Alisson, uh, Fabinho and Jordan Shakiri. Um, and since then, um, we've not approached that level of spend in any of the subsequent years. So, um, you know, my, my view is certainly that, um, that there is enough um, headroom there from just club generated revenue um, to spend bigger than we have since that period. So, is that view? Uh, is that one view that you share as well, or do you have a different view? Um, I, I think I, I largely agree with the, the figure of two hundred million, um, in, including any any sales. I think um, Liverpool's cash flows. Uh, to be honest with you, I think any club's cash flows. It, it's not that difficult to to model. I think um, with Liverpool, if the club breaks even. In terms of profit and loss, which which has been the case um, last year, pretty much break even. Um, Liverpool generate cash of about 120 million pounds. That, that's because of the the big non cash um, expenses, which is the amortisation of historical transfer fees and the 
uh, fixed asset. That's like the stadium facilities depreciation. So that's in year cash of let's, let's say for argument's sake, to be simple, a hundred million pounds of cash coming in. Um, as, as you say at the beginning of the year, we, we, we don't have a huge amount of transfer debt. We, we do have transfer debt. Um, but not, not massive amounts due to the recent lack of activity. Um, we also have transfer debt coming in still as well. If you look at the, uh, the, the club's published accounts, you, you can see the difference between, um, what we owe and what is owed to us and the net figure. It isn't actually that, that big anyway. So mm. the, the, the question for me comes down to, um, two other factors that are, um, one being capital expenditure on stadium expansion. And I know that's largely done. Um, but, uh, at, at the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if there were still, um, costs going in in 21, 22, um, that would have to be paid for using the in-year cash. And, uh, annoyingly, it would be interesting to see if the club has yet again voluntarily decided to repay uh, down the credit facility because I think, in in my opinion, that the the in cash flow terms, the the thing that cost us the most in the last two financial years were the the loan repayments. That was uh, forty million pounds last year and around seventy million pounds the year before. So if if the club decides that they want to pay down the loans at a similar rate, I think that could affect transfers. Um, I'm hoping that the, that FSG realize that, um, because of not qualifying for the Champions League next season, that is a risk that the operating model can't take again in terms of strain. And I, I know we're, we're going to discuss it, the potential amounts of cash lost because of that. Um, but I've, I've got my own estimate for that. And my, my hope is that the club recognizes in investment is more important than debt repayment. Um, this time round, and that forty million pounds of cash isn't depleted on a loan that doesn't need to be repaid until uh, January two thousand and twenty-five. Um, so yeah, let's see. Let's see what. Let's see what happens in in that case, and and then we can we can we can go from there. As as long as the the issues in the squad are addressed, I don't think anybody would be displeased if some of the loan was repaid. But we, I, I think, I think the club can't have that perception out there that it's once again prioritised long repayments over player transfers, and uh, not only <laughs> disappointing fans, but also damaging their own own asset in, in doing so. Yeah, I completely agree, and uh, you know that that's why I've been suggesting that this is perhaps the biggest transfer window of FSG's entire reign. And, uh, you know, they have been at the helm for, you know, coming up to 14 years now. Um, sorry, 13 years, I should say. Um, took over in October 2010. And um, clearly, um, and it, it's not obviously just on the ownership, but there have been a catalogue of um, mistakes made, um, you know, not, not least strategic in terms of the direction of the club which have led us to a situation where um, the squad now needs um, a significant amount of investment, not only this in this window, but also over, I would suggest, the next couple of windows as well. Um, 
you know, the, the age profile of the squad um, was allowed to get um, to an unacceptable position. And given the style of football that um, Klopp favours, um, it simply wasn't um, conducive to have an older group of players um, when, when the expectation from the manager is um, to play this up-tempo, high-energy football, uh, form of style of football, um, when, when, you know, you have a squad full of players in the late 20s and into their 30s. Um, and, and that was evidenced again by the um, running stats, amongst other statistics, where year on year over the last four years, in fact, um, the, the squad and, and the team has running, been running during matches less and less and less. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's clearly, you know, that kind of evidence there that suggests that, um, you know, uh, we, we should have been far more proactive in terms of managing the squad and, um, you know, turning over, um, you know, players just before they perhaps hit um, that point past their peak. Um, and, uh, you know, from a financial point of view also, whilst they still re- retain um, some value, um commercially as well. So when they have perhaps two years left on their deal, they might be hitting the age of 29, um, 30 even, and showing that they are perhaps just slightly past their peak years um, to be able to sell them for 30, 40, maybe even 50 million pounds would, would be sensible business. And yet what we also know is that instead the club has allowed a number of players to run down their contracts and leave on a free and we've seen that just over this summer when uh, no fewer than four players were allowed to run their contracts down and left on a free in uh, Bobby Firmino, Naby Keita, James Milner and Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. And again, with more proactive management of the squad uh, between them, um, you know, that they could have generated um, in excess of £100 million worth of uh, receipts, which could have clearly been ploughed into signing at least two, if not three, maybe even four players um, who, who could have added a bit more um, to our on-pitch efforts um, last season and perhaps the season before. But as I said earlier, we are where we are. And hopefully <laughs> uh, the, the least we can ask for is that um, Klopp and the ownership um, have learnt their lesson or lessons and and try not to repeat these mistakes again. Um, but the proof will certainly be in the pudding. So that then leads me, Mo, um, to look at um, FSG's entire kind of uh, philosophy around um, player trading and um, their transfer strategy. And I guess this is where I, I have perhaps the biggest issue with FSG because... And I really like to get your thoughts on this as well, because when I look at how we have operated, where since the sale of Felipe Coutinho, for example, we've only seen one player leave for a, a fee in excess of 25 million in Sadio Mane um, last summer. And that was a fee that was barely in excess of 25 million at that. And then we have seen um, the club generally try to avoid making um, significant signings of fees in excess of £50 million. And again, we, we've only seen, um, I, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, one uh, transaction 
above that amount since 2018 in um, Nunez. And again, the jury is definitely out in terms of that deal. Um, and, and that was a deal that meant many said um, was driven largely by Jurgen Klopp rather than um, the, the scouting people, the analytics people um, that, you know, Klopp felt that uh, he, he, the player passed the Klopp eye test and uh, thought he would be a good fit. And yet, based on just the season just gone, um, there, there's still a fair bit of work to do to make the player mesh into the way that we we, we play. But going back to my point, um, we, we try to avoid spending big on um, single players. But then we also have seen that we try to not spend um, big when it comes to academy players. So we have a self-imposed um, wage cap for uh, academy players, which means that uh, we, we generally tend not to sign um, many of the more promising youngsters um, and uh, they tend to end up going to um, the likes of Manchester City, Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester United, all of whom pay significantly more uh, by way of wages for these, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds. Um, so the point being, again, um, we, we don't look to invest heavily um, in terms of youth. We don't look to invest significantly in terms of um, single players who perhaps can make more of a transformational difference. And again, we saw that um, in the deal of uh, Erling Haaland, um, who had a, an absolutely rip-roaring season for Manchester City. Um, obviously, that, that deal was far in excess of um, the reported transfer fee of just over 50 million uh, when you factor in all the other very, very significant costs associated to getting that deal done. Um, and then you look at the lack of player trading. Um, and that normally, um, if you're in a situation where um, you don't have owner financing to support your activities, player trading is perhaps the best way of being able to generate funds. So I, I think that that is where there is perhaps a real disconnect between the ownership and the management. And ultimately what it means is that um, though in a window like this one, we are able to potentially go and spend relatively big, it isn't something that is feasible season on season. Uh, and that will be a frustration for some fans who might look at a club like Arsenal, where despite significantly um, lesser revenues being generated, um, have for several successive seasons now outspent Liverpool. And clearly, I mean, there are certain factors that help with that, the fact that they have a smaller wage bill. Um, but despite that, um, they seem to have adapted their operating model um, in order to try and get more business done and to be able to pay um, larger fees um, to sign the players that the club feels um, can help restore um, on-pitch success. So, so in, in, in closing then, Mo, I, I really fear that FSG have this rigid approach to transfer dealings and there hasn't been any real sign that that will change. And they still hope, I feel, that um, 
the club can recruit more smartly than everyone else um, by getting these deals over the line for, you know, 25, 30, 35, 40 million pounds and hope that that, that can result in um, the club being greater than the sum of its parts. And that did certainly work very well 2018 to 2022. But it, it seems like it's almost unrealistic to expect it to continue working well season on season. So what, what are your thoughts around what I just laid out in terms of FSG's model when it comes to doing transfer business? I think, I think the, the Coutinho situation it was one of those uh, one-offs. It, it kind of set the, the butterfly effect going for what FSG did under the, uh, the guidance of Klopp and Michael Edwards. And that resulted in the right investments made. We, we signed marquee players. We signed expensive players in Allison who briefly was the most expensive goalkeeper in the world. We signed Van Dijk, who was uh, also for, uh, I think, a year or two, the most expensive uh, defender in the world. Um, but like you say, that that um, sale of a Coutinho-type player uh, doesn't happen um, that often. It probably happens once every, what, four or five years. The one before that was, was Suarez. Um, but I think where Liverpool had gotten to in that time um, became a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy of uh, becoming a club that's now known as a club that's not a selling club. And I think players have that in their mentality now where we became a club where you want to stay. We, we became maybe not at the same level of Real Madrid or Barcelona, but just the level below, I would say, where um, people wouldn't necessarily look at Real, Real Madrid and Barcelona as automatically the the holy grail compared to Liverpool because at Liverpool you could still win a Champions League, you could still win a Premier League uh, up until a couple of years ago. At least we had that image. Um, I, I don't think FSG disliked that image. I think the Salah contract showed that they're not afraid to to stop being that selling club because what could have happened was Salah could have been sold. They they could have uh, won the PR war there by saying Salah's refusing to sign a, a, a contract and got a big fee for Salah, even with a year left on his, on his deal. But they, they didn't. They, they gave him the biggest contract in the history of the club. Uh, so I I think FSG's, FSG are stuck in this, in this sort of no man's land where they don't necessarily know what they are the identity of of themselves, the identity of their of their transfer strategy, where they they want um, the, to be able to sign the biggest and the best players and be able to pay, pay the biggest fees. And I think you can see that with Nunes. I think I said it at the time as well. I think Nunes was the wrong decision. I think mm. a midfielder was was priority. They, uh, in in my opinion, they they missed out on Shuamani, and um, they had this attitude that if if you uh, if you're not going to get your number one target, that's it. You're not going to get anybody, anybody else. And I think that's, I think that's wrong. Um, so I think what FSG are trying to do now is go back to that, um, uh, that sporting director driven, uh, data driven, um, strategy where you're looking for undervalued players. And, um, I think McAllister was a good example of one where, 
you, you know he's a good player. He's, he's he's been scouted by the club before, and you also know that there's a, a release clause in there, or there was some sort of mechanism in there whereby you could get him um, uh, for a relatively cheap price. And I think they'll be doing the same with with players that are on on our radar, like Churam, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and they simply won't be making the mistake again of fixating on uh, a Jude Bellingham type player, uh, because I, I'm, I'm hoping that they've learned their lesson from that. I think the the issue is, will that be enough? Like you you asked earlier, um, signing those players that are under the radar, will that be enough to compete with Man City? Um, in in my opinion, um, that was always going to be enough to compete for top four. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I think as long as you're in the in, in in the competition for top four, you can generate enough revenue to maybe not sign a marquee player every two years, but maybe sign one every three or four years. And I think that's where they lost sight. I think I think they they should have um, carried on with their with their data driven undervalued model um, instead of trying to do two things at once. Um, and and I think what they're trying to do going looking forward is um, use those agent relationships. Because remember, we're, we're the second highest um, agent fee cl- agent fee paying club in world football behind Borussia Dortmund. Um, so there's a reason, in my opinion, that we pay those agent fees. Um, it's to build certain relationships to attract certain players. And I'm hoping that that's what they're going to be doing um, going forward and exploiting those relationships now um, and at, at least addressing the issues in the team. And that will give us a good chance rather than um, not addressing uh, issues and, and 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 going for a, a marquee striker in the way that we did with with Nunes. Hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa, he does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL Roundtable, there every week after the Premier League match week so make sure you listen to everything we're doing on epl index and follow us there on twitter at epl index thank you bye-bye yeah yeah i mean it's um encouraging in the sense that you know that obviously the club has in recent weeks brought in the sporting director i mean there's debate about exactly what kind of deal he's on whether it's a short-term deal or he's intended to be around for the longer term um, but nonetheless, um, there are certainly signs that um, we are trying to be a little bit smarter in terms of how we recruit um, compared to what we ha- perhaps had been um, in the last couple of years where some of the recruitment decision-making 
um, was a little bit odd to say the least and clearly disjointed. And, and, and that is evidenced by the fact that not one, but two sporting directors have resigned in the space of about 18 months to two years. Um, so ho- ho- hopefully again, um, you know, not only at an ownership level, but even with the manager himself, um, some lessons have been learned and uh, there's a bit of humility that may have come by the failures of last season. Um, and obviously the proof will be in the pudding. Um, and by the end of the transfer window, hopefully we'll see um, exactly what extent of lessons have been learned. Um, but um, just one other point I wanted to make around all of this discussion is I think that certainly that approach of identifying undervalued players was clearly successful um, around 2016 to 2018 when we brought in, you know, Sadio, Ginny Wijnaldum, Andy Robertson um, and others. And uh, we put together a formidable squad. Uh, But that was at a time when a number of rival clubs um, had a recruitment policy or approach that was even if anything, arguably more disjointed than what we've seen from Liverpool in the last year or two. Um, you know, you looked at Manchester United, whose approach to recruitment was laughable. Um, you had a Chelsea, who were very hit and miss when it came to recruitment, signed some very good players, but also signed some complete and utter duds. Um, an Arsenal, who um, certainly in the latter days of Wenger, fell asleep at the wheel, um, and uh, even after Wenger um, made some very hit and miss decisions on recruitment. Um, and obviously, since then, we've seen um, Arsenal improve recruitment-wise. Um, Chelsea, who despite having had an absolute failure of a season just gone, um, have nonetheless still managed to sign some of the most promising young players in world football over the last year or so and you know with the right management of that squad um, and the right kind of approach on the pitch um, could still turn things around pretty quickly um, and then we've seen the rise and emergence of Newcastle United who seem to have a very smart approach to recruitment have made a lot of very smart shrewd uh, deals um, since their takeover um, and um, I, I expect that they'll do some very inspired business um, during this close season as well. Um, so the point I'm making is that dynamics, ha- dynamics have changed. Some of our rival clubs are also um, looking for those good deals as well um, to a greater extent than they perhaps were um, when we first rose to prominence um, and had that purple patch of fantastic recruitment 2016 to 2018. Um, so, so that's my only worry that whilst we are trying to perhaps restore that, um, other clubs are certainly smarter to the game than they were six, seven years ago. Um, so, so that's where, um, I'm personally of the view that yes, it's great to identify those great deals, but the ideal would be to be in a position where you can identify and secure those deals whilst at the same time being able to fund other business, which is more significant and bring in those genuine world-class players, those game changers, 
that can be the difference between finishing second or third and winning major honours um, and, and winning those honours over more than just a season or two. Um, so uh, uh, that, that, that again, is a frustration in terms of the way that we currently operate. But uh, moving on, um, so just uh, quickly to touch on one of the points that you raised earlier, Mo, uh, which is around infrastructure spend. Um, so again, um, on the subject of frustration, um, that I think has been something that has frustrated you and I, um, the approach that FSG have deliberately taken to financing um, infrastructure work. Um, so we saw it firstly with um, the uh, expansion of the main stand, uh, which concluded in 2016-17, and then the construction of um, the Kirby Axa training complex, um, which was entirely funded from club revenues. There was no borrowing involved in that. And then, again, most recently with the Anfield Road and expansion uh, with, with a reported cost of £80 million, where, again, it is being funded from club revenues, albeit um, um, the ownership might point to the fact that um, they did um, take advantage of the credit facility and would argue perhaps that um, the 200 million that they drew down on that um, is going towards covering the costs of, of that. But um, the reason why it has been a source of frustration for you and I, and also for others as well, is that um, th- that those deals, that, that infrastructure work could have financially been delivered in a different way. And had it been structured on a more longer-term basis, like we've seen Tottenham, for example, do with their very expensive new um, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, um, then that almost certainly would have freed up more funds um, to spend on um, investment in the playing squad. And, um, uh, you know, as you rightly pointed out, um, you know, the, the club might, you know, this summer look to spend more towards reducing some of those loans and borrowing um, and, and that obviously has a knock-on effect on um, what funds are available for investment into the squad. Um, but now that we are coming towards the end of um, the works on the Anfield Road end, um, and as you noted earlier, um, one of these loans um, um, is due to be repaid in 2025, do you think there is scope perhaps for FSG to do something slightly out of um, character and perhaps spread that uh, commitment to a more long-term arrangement, which, which then eases the pressure on on um, expenditure. Do, do, do you think that the club and FSG might be um, possibly leaning that way? Or do you, do you think that they will still look to um, stick to their policy of trying to repay significant chunks of um, that that debt um, as quickly as possible. I I, th- I think a lot of that depends on the investment needs of the club. I think I, I think they will get to a point now where, um, as you said earlier, the the number of competitors for top four has increased now. So you're talking about the the, the club's operating model being under a huge strain. 
and he and, and that's in a kind of risk that they haven't seen before. Um, so uh, it will come down to, in my opinion, how they perceive that risk. Uh, the the loan facility, for example, that you compared it to the Spurs one. The, the Spurs one is is more like a mortgage. It's like a thirty year mortgage. Um, I think it lasts about thirty or forty years as well. So yeah. that. Um, is is pretty much paid for by the increasing capacity, revenue capacity of of the, the multi-purpose stadium. I think they could have and they should have done that with Liverpool as well. While his interest rates were historically low, I think um, you're you're getting to um, a space now in, in in the global economy where interest rates are much higher now. So they if if they do choose to refinance that loan. It will be at much higher rates. Um, probably, it will probably be twice, maybe three times the rates that they have at the moment, which is, I think, about two percent. Yeah, um, that would easily be possibly six, maybe even even seven percent, depending on how banks see uh, the the risk of of the club. Um, funnily enough, though, that cost of of capital is still much lower than, uh, say, they went to the market looking to raise equity. Um, if, if a private equity firm came in um, uh, and said that they'd buy a 10-15% stake in the club, I think they might find that the private equity money would, would come with strings attached as well um, mm. and potentially uh, cash returns, preference shares or, or some sort of repayment period as well. So in, in my opinion, um, they will have to see how the club competes um this but towards the end of this uh, coming season and uh if if the club is there with um qualifying for the champions league i think that it i think that will allay some of their fears but if if it's looking like it's another dog fight for the champions league i think that's where they will have to they'll, they'll have to start to review the operating model and whether they can operate at the same level um I, I think if you're looking at City, where we, we see uh, related party revenue streams, uh, Newcastle, you've got the same thing with their new sponsorship deal with Seller, another related party also owned by PIF. Um, that's literally um, an inter-group arrangement where you can the owner can decide how much to finance the club uh, by. Um, we don't have that. FSG don't have any, any anywhere near that. So um, FSG will have to completely review the landscape of, of English football. Uh, they've already done that. They tried to fix it with the European Super League and, the, and they failed. Uh, the, the, the question is, what, what do FSG see in the landscape of football that can mitigate that? And, 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 I, and I think like, we'll probably discuss this a bit later on with the, with the FFP uh, that's coming in. And um, the charges that Man City face, because I think that will tell them a lot about their ability to compete um, in the current and the future environment of the Premier League and, and, and where it's heading um, in, in terms of protecting the the group of com- uh, of clubs that aren't owned by state, um, uh, but by states. So it's a very very uncertain territory i think i think if if i asked you how would you feel if you owned a club in this environment i think you'd say the same thing if your wealth was tied to it so it's it's very uncertain you'll you'll have to take your time to think about it 
try your best in the background to get the rules to be in your favor. If that doesn't happen, then you're, you're, you're forecasting about three or four different scenarios in, into five years in the future. So very, very uncertain times, um, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, and you, and you do raise some interesting points, and I'd like to just revisit those in a moment. But before we cover those, um, I'd just like to touch on, um, in terms of this forthcoming season, um, in terms of future revenue streams, uh, commercial, because um, Greg Cordell, who um, great guest who joined us both um, last time around, has produced some interesting analysis um, um, on on Twitter and um, through his Substack uh, forum, and um, uh, through his analysis and some of the less detailed analysis that I've produced, and suggested that uh, for the first time, commercial revenue for the club uh, for twenty two twenty three should have been the number one source of revenue um, overtaking uh, broadcast revenue. So uh, that is pretty significant. And um, that is an interesting one as well on account of the fact that the most lucrative of all of the commercial deals for the club is the um, kit manufacturer deal. The kit, sponsor, uh, the kit manufacturer deal is currently with Nike and um, we are now just over three years into that deal and are entering year four as we go into 22-23. And historically, um, the club does, and not just Liverpool, but uh, you know, most top clubs do look to negotiate um, that deal um, in that penultimate year of the contract uh, and don't tend to prefer waiting until the final year of the deal um, to have that. Um, new deal in place, whether it's a deal with a new um, partner or with the existing partner. Um, and that's where, again, the timing of missing out on top four um, is not ideal by any means in terms of those negotiations, because you know negotiating for a potential uplift to the existing deal, and just as a quick reminder, that existing deal is a base 30 million a year or a season, plus um, 20% of net sales um, for kits and 5% of net sales for footwear. Um, and it, it is my belief that that deal does generate at least £80 million a year. Um, so just to put that into context, that would slightly exceed the revenue generated by the Adidas deal that Manchester United has, uh, which uh, is a 10-year deal that ends in 2025. Um, so it's a very, very lucrative deal for Liverpool Football Club um, but it is one that um, will be negotiated. Um, and obviously, Nike will have um, first dibs at that. And I, I suspect that Liverpool will certainly make every effort to um, extend that deal, that partnership with Nike. Um, and, and we also know that um, the standard charter deal um, was uplifted. Um, there was an agreement made um, in 2022, um, though that new deal, um, takes effect um, from 23-24. So at the start of the new season, um, the front of shirt sponsorship uh, will be generating approximately 10 million a season more uh, than the previous deal. So, so that, that's obviously a, a very good result. But nonetheless, um, it's the main deal, uh, the Nike deal, um, that 
um, is the one that's up for grabs. Um, and I, I suspect, as I said, Nike will extend their relationship with the club. Um, but do, do you think that that is something that will happen? Or do, do you think that there's a possibility that another company, like even an Adidas, might try and um, oust Nike from that arrangement and perhaps get in bed back again with Liverpool? I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> this is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super-fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, Mac boxes and games consoles. Visit LibertyShield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. I think um, a lot will depend on, on the sentiment around the club uh, in the season. I think um, our negotiating position would be impacted heavily uh, by how the club uh, is performing and um, how that affects sales. Um, Nike would want to see a big return. <laughs> I think they will review the relationship based on how much money they've made. Um, and if if those numbers are being impacted, and uh, I know from my experience in 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 working in football finance and uh, seeing this for myself, that uh, merchandise sales are very quickly impacted by performance on the pitch, by by fan sentiment, positivity, yeah. negative negativity. Um, there there is barely any lag. Uh, the the only place where there's a lag is the big contracts that you sign with the with the kit manufacturers with with your main shirt sponsor with your sleeve sponsor etc. So with with those contracts you can kind of have a bit of a drop off in the middle of one of those contracts. But as long as you're coming out high at the end of the contract, you can negotiate another good contract with the same um, same party or a different party. So uh, I I would say. That is again up in the air, but hopefully with the right sort of um, player investments, um, FSG understand that its its um, commercial revenue is 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 a very fleeting kind of revenue that uh, depends heavily on on cyclical success and um, the sponsors wanting to see uh, the club lift trophies um, their their name up in lights alongside Liverpool. So uh, I, I would hope, and I think as well, that we'll be back in, in contention with the Champions League, and, and, and that would, would would help us with this night deal. And I expect us to renew renew the night deal. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that that's the most likely outcome. Um, but you know, as you also rightly pointed out, um, where 
um, such deals are more leveraged based on volume of sales. Um, that's where um, it's it certainly a more volatile um, income stream. And that's one of the concerns I've always had about it, that the club chose to enter into a deal which was more incentivized, a lower, much lower base. So just for context, Nike's deal with uh, Chelsea, for example, guarantees a base 60 million a year. Um, but obviously, in terms of um, any kind of percentage cut on sales, um, that, that pretty much is non-existent as far as I'm aware. Um, whereas obviously the Liverpool deal um, in, involves a, a significant cut of 20% on net sales. Um, and that has obviously um, helped to generate revenues from that deal of in excess of £80 million. But um, due to lack of uh, success, in 22-23, plus failure to uh, qualify for the Champions League um, and possibly even um, by not bringing in the super sexy uh, names in the transfer window or could combine to result in lesser, substantially lesser um, kit sales <laughs> in the forthcoming season. And before you know it, uh, that, that revenue stream could be down um, from percentage uh, perspective quite significantly. So um, that that is a concern that has always existed about the current deal. Um, but ho- hopefully there won't be a too significant impact. And um, certainly the, the kit itself for next season in terms of the home kit is uh, fa- fairly, uh, in my view, the most uh, attractive of the ones produced by Nike thus far. So hopefully that will help mitigate some of the impact on sales as well. But moving back to um, one of our earlier discussion points around um, changes in the football landscape. Um, And I think it was interesting, the interview that was uh, conducted by Dave Powell of the Liverpool Echo with John Henry. John W. Henry obviously um, conducted very few interviews, um, but one of the uh, interviews that he made was with Dave and... uh, he didn't really say a great deal of any substance, but the, the kind of gist of what he did have to say, for me, and I don't know if you agree, but for me, seemed to suggest that rather he and FSG looking to change the way they operate, instead um, they, they continue to hope and expect that um, football regulators change the way in which football operates um, to a way that suits their model uh, more. And, uh, you know, we, we have heard in the last week or so about um, the Premier League uh, voting through certain changes um, around, for example, linking um, uh, play wages um, of all the clubs to um, certain aspects of revenue of the lowest earning club um, in terms of broadcast revenue um, and also um, in terms of um, leveraging um, buyouts with borrowing as well. Um, so, and obviously there's been discussions about um, other more wider associated matters. And, you know, again, you mentioned the uh, pending um, charges um, uh, leveled against Manchester City uh, by the Premier League um, that still have a way to go before those are um, concluded one way or another. Um, but with all of these different changes, um Do you think that all of them might help or hinder FSG's um, uh, kind of intentions around the running of the club? Do you you think that they will make any material difference to the general direction that we've seen 
in the last couple of years where, if anything, um, it, it's becoming even more like the Wild West in terms of spend and unregulated um, uh, approaches to um, you know transfer dealings and whatnot. Or, or do you think that there will be a movement back towards greater regulation and control? And obviously, if it's the latter, that is something that um, will be more conducive to the FSG way. So where, where do you see all of this kind of panning out in the next year or two? I think in, in the next year or two, uh, they will be very disappointed. Um, uh, in American sports, uh, the, the, the culture of, of controlling revenues, the culture of having salary caps is what drives the, the competitiveness and, and how in, I'm, I'm not familiar with a lot of American sports, but, but I do know that you, you have a lot of different champions. And um, big players can can move around lots of different um, uh, teams in in basketball, for for for, for example. And um, I think FSG. Uh, well, actually, I know I, I know FSG. Uh, when they bought into Liverpool, there was an expectation that that FFP was a real thing and that FFP would be enforced and properly policed. But that that obviously didn't happen. Uh, they they wanted the Super League project, would, would, which would have had the same thing. So super, the, the Super League project would have had the revenue streams and the salary caps enshrined in its uh, rules and its laws. But obviously that didn't happen. So now you have the, the new um, salary cap coming in uh, and the new FFP coming in next season. Uh, in, in, in my opinion, a lot of the compliance to these kinds of rules are cultural and environmental. And unfortunately in the next two or three years, I don't see a culture shift or, or, or a big change in the environment that would um, encourage compliance. Uh, I, I think that kind of cultural shift happens over large periods of time and also happens when there are real consequences to breaking those rules. So I think they are relying on this Man City case. Um, if if that can if that has real sanctions, um, then I think they will judge from that whether there's a real incentive uh, for teams to comply with the rules in place or not. Um, I think maybe in the long term there will be change. I think there's there, there is appetite for a football regulator. The, the Premier League cartel, you can tell, is, let's say, very, very unhappy in the way Man City have done things over the last 10 years or so. And there there were grumblings about Newcastle as well. We, we know that they temporarily banned related party sponsorship. Um, that lapsed. And um, since that, that lapsed, Newcastle United signed that related party sponsorship deal. So you, you, you can tell that there's there's... Enough momentum there. The the the, the question is, um, are they willing to go all the way with it? Um, and when I say that, I mean I mean potentially people take them to court um, over uh, new rules and enforcement of those rules and and, and sanctions. Uh, so if, for me, it will be interesting to see how FSG react. But in my opinion, you you won't see. Uh, real change until probably another 10, 10 years from now um, where uh, people 
will learn from retrospective mistakes and the rules will be, I think, uh, potentially more easier to pass through, uh, perhaps when Man City and Newcastle are at a stage where they don't feel under threat by the rules. Um, I think that's that's quite important. And the, the clubs that are taking advantage of getting around the rules uh, have to feel like they're in a position where they're not threatened by the rules. Um, but it's at the moment, it's, it's, it's kind of doing it after the horse has bolted. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, for, unfortunately for, for FSG, they'll have to contend with that for a few more years, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, um, you know, one of the factors here is that the Premier League has in recent times become a geopolitical pawn and there are players involved who, whose resources, whose power, whose influence far, far, far exceeds that of the Premier League. Um, and w- when that is the case, um, the leverage that the Premier League can exert as an institution over these much bigger players um, is, uh, in my view, limited. And uh, I think even if rules are implemented, whether they're in the short-term, medium or long-term, ultimately, I do not see a scenario arising that would be completely in line with what FSG would want, which is something that prohibits owners from investing their own funds into the affairs of their football club. Um, that they are firm believers in self-sustainability, which, you know, in layman's terms means no owner investment. That's the model that they've operated to largely um, during their tenure. They have put in um, some money into the club, um, though that hasn't occurred really for quite a number of years. And um, would we move to that type of model entirely? I I am very sceptical that we will see that. I I think even with greater regulation, we will still see some element of um, owner investment um, allowed. And indeed, even the um, FFP rules um, that were brought in by UEFA that were adopted by the Premier League allowed owner investment. And, uh, you know, the new set of rules also allowed an element of that as well. So I don't think we'll ever move to a model which completely eradicates that, um, despite what FSG may desire. Um, But in closing then, Mo, um, let's look ahead now to the season coming up, 23-24. So, you know, we all, um, as football fans, look at it, in terms of the opportunity to start with the clean slate uh, to an extent, and certainly that kind of mood will be very heavily influenced by whatever business we do or don't manage to do in the next couple of months. Um, but in terms of revenue, I, I put out a thread recently to estimate that the club, despite the lack of Champions League, um, should still rev- uh, generate revenues in the region of about £560 million. Um, which would be um, obviously Europa League money. And I assumed a deep run into that competition of probably about uh, semi-finals getting to that stage at least, um, as well as a top four finish in the Premier League. And with um, the new standard chart deal and one or two other deals taking into effect commercially, 
as well as increased matchday revenue through the opening of the expanded Anfield Road end. Um, that led me to estimate that figure of 560, might have been 570 million, um, which is not far off my estimate for revenues of the season just finished. So despite some reports pointing out that Champions League, uh, winning the Champions League can generate revenue of 100 million on its own, and you know we're going to miss out on that, I think the actual more meaningful comparison is looking at year-on-year revenue levels. And I think that the hit is is far less significant. And on top of that, I also estimate that um, the wage bill should be down appreciably um, due to not having to pay out um, Champions League uh, participation bonuses and associated bonuses for things like goals, clean sheets, etc. Um, so what, what is your outlook in, in terms of the finances of the club for the season coming up. Do you, do you tend to agree that it, it will be in, in, in that region or do, do, do you think that there, there will be quite a, a more significant impact on the club's finances? I, I don't I don't disagree. So you've, you've estimated maybe about £30 million of, of revenue overall dropped when you account for the non-like for like New stuff, the new the new revenues uh, like the the increased sponsorship deal, um, the increased capacity of the stadium. Um, I, I looked at it the other way, to, to, to be honest with you, where, whereby yeah. how much how much would we lose on a like for like basis had we qualified for the Champions League in in the coming season? So we would have had the benefits of, of the new sponsorship, the new uh, capacity of the stadium, and how much would we do we now face in the Europa League and and on that basis, I estimated that uh, a bottom line we lose about fifty million pounds. Um, so, it, it, in my opinion, considering it's a year out of uh, the Champions League, it's not that significant. Um, so, uh, but but I, I agree with you if you just compare it with the previous year, the loss the, the loss in in bottom line cash. Isn't isn't anywhere near that fifty million. It's probably about twenty million, thirty million pounds in, in cash lost compared to the previous financial year. But I, I can't help but think uh, it's a shame that we we haven't qualified for Champions League because then we could have really taken advantage of that increased capacity. Um, it maybe maybe we'll sell out. Maybe we'll sell out in the Europa League. Uh, maybe our ticket prices won't be that different. <laughs> In, in the Europa League, um, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But from my previous experience, um, we, we wouldn't—I I don't think we'd set up the stadium for Europa League games until the latter stages. And um, I, I definitely don't think the ticket prices will be anywhere near the Champions League um, get home game yeah. prices. Uh, so, so there'll be a little bit of loss, but nothing—nothing nothing that, in my opinion, worries me for the long run. If it was a second year out of Europe, uh, sorry, out of the Champions League, I would definitely be worried because then you're talking about uh, another lot of revenue, like for like revenue lost, but also uh, damage taken on the commercial side as well. And sponsors not seeing you as attractive, potentially losing sponsors and, and having to downgrade to, to the next sort of, sort of level or, or, or the existing sponsors paying you much, much less. And not being able to attract players, I think two seasons out of the Champions League is, is is a very very slippery slope. But one season out, I think as long as we hit the ground running in the new season, you can you can combat that simultaneously. 
you can kind of take the shame <laughs> of uh, playing in the Europa League if, if you're flying high in the Premier League. I don't think anybody mm-hmm. will complain about that. So that's, that's how I see it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think one of the encouraging things also is that um, going into the new season, um, there will be the opportunity potentially to qualify for the Champions League in spite of finishing top, uh, outside of the top four. Um, so there will be a f- potential fifth place um, qualification route based on the coefficient, um, which could still secure Champions League football. And Liverpool's coefficient um, score is, is very high, um, obviously due to its recent success in the Champions League competition. Um, so e- even a fifth place finish could help and should help secure Champions League football. Though clearly we'll all be hoping for a much more stronger season than that. And, uh, you know, ho- hopefully, uh, you know, with, with the right recruitment, with, with a fair uh, wind, you know, we, we could even uh, be competing for or challenging for the Premier League. Um, but, you know, <laughs> let, let's uh, um, get, get the bare minimum over the line first. And that, that's making sure that the um, missing out of the Champions League is a single season blip. And as you say, um, that, that's certainly not something that we'd that would be in, uh, in in the club's interests longer term. I mean, we, what we don't know is whether certain commercial deals are um, predicated on um, regular appearances in the Champions League. So we obviously know that that's a fact for Manchester United. Um, they miss out for two seasons or more. Their um, Adidas deal reduces by thirty percent, and one or two of the other more notable deals might be leveraged in that way as well. Um, so it might be the case that, that applies to Liverpool, but that that would explain why we often see Manchester United, when they have missed out on top four, go out and spend big um, because of the desperation to avoid um, reductions in these big lucrative commercial deals. And that's why they spent so heavily last summer, albeit some of their business, again, was pretty hit and miss. Um, inspired signing the likes of uh, Casemiro, um, far from inspired in bringing in um, Anthony, for example. But uh, there you go. Right, Mo. So um, really um, in-depth and uh, comprehensive uh, discussion on um, pretty much all aspects of the club's uh, finances, um, in, not only in terms of the season just gone, um, but the season to come and the wider kind of financial context as well that the club is operating in, as well as um, more... Um, most in terms of fans' uh, interest around the transfer window that we are now um, into. So um, I'd really like to thank you so much for joining uh, me here on Money Talks and uh, covering all these great discussion points. Um, so for anyone that is interested in following you on social media, uh, where, where can they find you? I'm uh, Mo Shimon on Twitter. Thank you very much for having me, by the way, Mo and uh, Guy. I really appreciate it. I had had fun again. So, yeah, thank you very much. Excellent. Thanks for uh, being a great guest as always and uh, really appreciate your time. So, listeners, um, I um, will hopefully be back again um, in the next uh, several weeks um, and to get a couple of more uh, money talks out before the start of the new season in about two months' time. And, um, again, we'll um, explore um, some of the... uh, more uh, pertinent um, subjects when it comes to the finances, commercial aspects and 
other associated uh, elements of Liverpool Football Club, the club that we all love and support. So until next time, thanks for joining. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.